grandmother never told me what was right or what was wrong. Never taught me to play guitar, never taught me to write songs. One thing that she taught me, I'll remember for all time. That's that you should never walk across a picket line. Oh, I would never walk across a picket line. Solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes. Long live the union, cross my heart and hope to die. I should ever walk across a picket line. So many people have been unwilling to say the word strike. Say it with me. Strike. Strike, 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 strike. <laughs> That's Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants. The New York Times called her America's most powerful flight attendant for her role in helping to end the 35-day government shutdown in 2019. In that same year, she made InStyle Magazine's Top 50 Badass Woman list. Sarah gave the keynote address at the April 6th symposium celebrating the 50th anniversary of Jeremy Brecker's classic labor history book, Strike. And on Labor History in 2, the year was 1968. That was the day 4,000 auto workers at Chrysler's Dodge Main Plant in Hamtrak, Michigan, walked out in a wildcat strike. My labor historian dad, John Garlot, gave me a copy of the first edition of Jeremy Brecker's classic labor history, Strike. And I reread it regularly, especially when things for working people are looking bleak. Because it reminds me that, as Gene Deb said, 10,000 times has the labor movement stumbled and bruised itself. We have been enjoined by the courts, assaulted by thugs, charged by the militia, traduced by the press, frowned upon in public opinion, and deceived by politicians. But, insisted Debs, notwithstanding all this and all these, labor is today the most vital and potential power this planet has ever known. And its historic mission is as certain of ultimate realization as is the setting of the sun. Here's my dad's inscription from my copy of Strike. There are some things in this book you should know. There is still more about fighting for what you believe to be right that you can only learn from your own struggle. I can give you only the lessons I've learned. First, that militancy is a tactic, not an end in itself. Second, struggle lovingly. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. Greetings, fellow workers. Welcome to the 50th anniversary symposium on Jeremy Brecker's strike. My name is Todd Vashan, and I'm the director of the Labor Education Action Research Network, or just LEARN in the School of Management and Labor Relations at Rutgers University. I'm very excited to be here with you all tonight to discuss some of my favorite topics, working class history, organizing, and power building. One of the greatest sources of power we have as workers, both paid and unpaid, and mostly underpaid, is the ability to withhold our labor or our cooperation and participation in systems of oppression. When we join together in solidarity, there's nothing we cannot achieve. The potential power, is actualized when we organize, and as history has shown, it often manifests in the form of strikes. This is a subject that motivates and animates the book that brings us all together this evening, 
Jeremy Brecker's strike. I have not yet had my 50th anniversary, so I can't speak about the initial release and reception of the book in 1970, but thankfully we have someone with us tonight who can. I first read Strike in the 1990s when I was a member of the Laborers International Union and working at Millstone Nuclear Power Station in Eastern Connecticut as a firewatch. I very vividly remember the sense of rebellion and pride I felt bringing the book into work with me through the security checkpoint each day that summer. You'd have to scan your palm, go through the metal detectors, pass the bomb sniffing dog while the highly armed militaristic guards rummaged through your bags. Well, inside my bag was my lunch and a copy of Strike and some vitamins, which I naively hoped would reduce the ill effects of radiation exposure. Something that I had looked up and researched at that great American socialist institution, the public library, where I had also borrowed the copy of Strike I was reading that summer. It was not until about 17 years later that I actually met Jeremy when he was helping to organize the Connecticut Roundtable on Climate and Jobs. And I was working with my fellow graduate employees at the University of Connecticut to organize our graduate employee union. So big shout out to the GEU UAW 6950. I'm sure you're out there. I know you're out there. Well, we invited Jeremy to come speak with our organizing committee at that time and had a fabulous conversation about the power of organizing. We then went on to win recognition for our 2100 member local in 2014 and our first contract in 2015. Our local stayed very involved in labor climate work, which led to many, many more opportunities for further collaboration with Jeremy over the years. He's been a great mentor and a personal friend ever since, which is why I'm so excited to hear some of the backstory of Strike, the book that has brought so many of us into labor activism, raised awareness and interest in labor history, and just brought people into activism in general. But before we jump into it, I want to extend my thanks to the many people and organizations that helped to make this event a reality. So first, a shout out to my Rutgers colleagues and friends, Janice Fine and Marilyn Snyderman, and the whole Center for Innovation and Worker Organization have been doing such great work on bargaining for the common good. Big ups to the entire Labor Network for Sustainability for making tonight possible, especially Judy Asman and Leo Blaine, who are behind the scenes right now, uh, running the boards, live streaming, and live tweeting the event. And a big union power shout out to our friends at Labor Notes, who had intended to mark this anniversary last spring, but their plans, like so many other things, were derailed by COVID. Finally, thank you to all of you for joining, taking an interest in our collective history and all the organizing that you all do each day to make new history that will hopefully adorn the pages in future chapters of Strike. But enough from me, because you didn't come to hear me, you came to hear the amazing lineup of speakers that we have tonight, starting with Sarah Nelson. Are you guys ready to hear from Sarah? Let me see what's going on in the chat box. We guys ready to hear from Sarah? <laughs> All right, that's what I'm talking about. So I'm sure everybody here knows who Sarah is, but if not, you are in for a real treat. Sarah has served as the International President of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, since 2014. She first became a union member in 1996, around the time I was first reading Strike, when she was hired as a flight attendant at United Airlines. And today she represents nearly 50,000 of aviation's first responders at 17 airlines. The New York Times called her America's most powerful flight attendant for her role in helping to end the 35-day government shutdown. And InStyle magazine placed her on their 2019 top 50 badass woman list. She's number one on my list. When COVID-19 decimated the airline industry last year, Sarah worked closely with Congress to secure the payroll support program that keeps aviation workers employed and connected to healthcare during the pandemic, 
while banning stock buybacks and capping executive compensation. Sarah has also been a leading voice encouraging women to join unions and run unions. Her work has been featured in several popular news outlets, including CBS Sunday Morning, The Nation, The New Republic, Cosmopolitan, Salon, and PBS NewsHour. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to pass the mic to Sarah Nelson. Thank you, Todd, and thank you to everyone. Uh, I especially have to thank Jeremy Brecker for bringing us together and um, making it possible for us to celebrate 50 years of strike. And let me just say, Todd's you know, uh, explanation of going into that workplace and carrying this book um, through security each day and, and feeling the power in that is exactly what all of us should feel. So many people have been unwilling to say the word strike, but say it with me, strike, 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 strike. <laughs> During the government shutdown, I had academics and labor leaders asking me, should you really say, use the word strike? You might scare the pilots. Um, <laughs> I said, no, you have to say the word strike. We have to be willing to say it. Mother Jones, I, those of you who have heard me speak before know that I will often start or end with this quote because it's really all we need to know and it is echoed throughout all of the pages of 50 years of strike uh, that Jeremy has cataloged for us and helped us to understand the kind of power that working people have by coming together uh, in, in common good and common cause. But Mother Jones said, the capitalists say there is no need of labor organizing, except that they themselves are continuously organizing and show their real beliefs. The capitalists want the most labor for the least money. The laborers want the most money for the least labor. Workers produce the wealth and build the world's palaces, but they neither use the wealth nor dwell in the palaces. And I just have to, yep, there you go. There's number one for those who have who are having shots for when Sarah cries tonight, talking about strike, <laughs> talking about worker power. There you go, there's one. Um, but Jennifer Bates behind me is one of the workers organizing for her union in the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama right now. And she said, we're the billionaires. We just don't spend it. She also said, we're not robots designed only to live to work. We work to live. And that's the kind of power and clarity that can come out of a worker's lips when they understand what they can accomplish by standing together with the people around them. Mother Jones said, if you would only realize that you hold the solution of the whole problem in your own hands, you could settle the whole question easily. If for instance, instead of striking in small groups, every industry in America were to hold up, the capitalists would be obliged to yield to any and all demands for the world could simply not go on. And I just wanna note how clear this has been. Yes. Strike was published before the first days of coronavirus. And so it's not in the pages of this book, but it gives us the foundation of everything that we need to know to fight back over what was so exposed during this past year. That we have allowed certain jobs to be defined as less valuable than others. That we have said that if you can't make enough in one job, 
and the market doesn't provide enough money to pay for that person to have a living wage with one job, then you should go get another one and another one after that. And it doesn't matter if you can't sleep, just work harder. And if you don't like where you are, then go get another job. What's wrong with you? But the truth is that we couldn't have survived this last year if it had not been for grocery workers, if it had not been for sanitation workers, truck drivers, or educators who made things work in the worst of times, flight attendants who continued to bring medical equipment and medical personnel to critical assistance for those communities in need and bring our U.S. postal packages in the bellies of our plane that deliver 4 million prescription drugs to people all over the country every single day. If it were not for the work of essential workers on the front lines, if it were not for the work of the Amazon workers in those warehouses, having to touch a box every eight seconds, having to be scolded by their bosses if they're not doing that fast enough or if they take too long to go to the bathroom. Having to do that and for no reason going into a space where they are putting their own lives at risk so the rest of us can live. And yet hazard pay has ended because the boss has decided that it's over because they see that the workers are not rising up to take their own. This is showing that we have way more in common than anything that could ever divide us. It's showing us that we have to set the agenda for the new green environment that we're going to create with the agenda that we set with a true just transition for working people, the agenda that we're going to set with this infrastructure bill right now that has to include labor rights. Because if you create millions of jobs, they are only good jobs if you make it possible for people to organize and hold the boss accountable, make them have to pay you a good wage, make them have to have safety and health provisions in the workplace, make them have to answer to your concerns. And I just wanna recognize that what's also so great about Strike is that Jer Jeremy Brecker makes clear, the main actors in the story are ordinary working people. What happens when people go to work? make a home shop and try to make a life may seem at first glance far removed from making history, but it's the only history that's ever mattered. He echoes what Mother Jones says and says that if we refuse to work, withdraw our cooperation, every social institution can be brought to a halt. By taking control of their own activity, they have the power to reshape society. These ordinary people going to work every day, just trying to have an ordinary life and be an ordinary family member, an ordinary mother and father, which to many kids is extraordinary. And that's, that's why we have to fight together because we have this common cause. There's nothing ordinary about it. There's nothing ordinary about working people standing together and understanding our power and understanding through strike the power that we have. Because the truth is the corporate elite have control and they have money. They have all the money in the world, but they don't truly have power. Jennifer Bates and her colleagues have made one of the richest people in the world have to answer <laughs> for the conditions that he's created in the warehouses that make him his billions. They've had to answer, they've been embarrassed and he has even called upon his own staff, Jeff Bezos has called upon his own staff to fight back 
and to set a narrative that is totally removed from the working people. We pay $15 an hour. Everybody should be happy to work here. And if you're not, go find another job. That's the narrative that the boss always sets, but the boss is not connected to the people. And I think about what we learn in the pages of strike and the working people and the immigrants who came together, not even speaking the same languages, but when someone gets hurt on the job, when there's a mine explosion, when people speaking different languages are next to each other in houses, company houses or tents, and having to tell their children or their father's not coming home. You don't have to speak the same language because you've got the same heart beating. You understand each other. And that's what strike does. It brings us together and helps define the fact that we have way more in common than anything that can divide us. And through our power together, we can change the course of history. Since Strike was first published, Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers. PATCO was a powerful union. They had a lot of money, they had a lot of solidarity. They set their demands clearly, but they failed to do what Mother Jones taught us to do. And that is to bring the community along with them, to have them understand the common cause together. And the rest of the labor movement failed to see that moment too. But that was a moment for all of us. That was a moment for, to stand up for the right to strike. And so when the government shutdown came along and Trump created that shutdown over the issue of the Southern border wall and the idea, setting the idea, the narrative in this country that we are divided, it was the greatest union busting move of all time. And that shutdown was not going to be solved by some political compromise. There was no compromise because the desire of the person in the White House was to privatize everything, to dismantle all functions of government. He couldn't wait for the air traffic controllers to walk off the job again. He couldn't wait for the TSA officers to say that they could no longer come to work because they were too tired from sleeping in their cars because they couldn't afford the gas to get back and forth from home. It would have been okay if there were a catastrophic incident because that would have accrued more power to the executive. And once we understood that it was upon all of us, labor, to stand up for our federal sister, sector sisters and brothers who had been told in all kinds of op-eds all over the country, if the air traffic controllers don't come to work, this will be over. If they do it, if they do it, if they take control, it's all gonna be fine while we all sit back in our armchairs and watch while other people take on all the risk. That's not how strike works. That's not how solidarity works. And the strike is our tactic. And it has to be what we plan for every single time. And it is not a simple majority to make a strike work, but it's a full determination of everyone in the workplace together. So when we said federal sector, our federal sector sisters and brothers are keeping the systems moving that we count on, the government that we count on, and they are facing even indictment and imprisonment if they don't go to work. And they continued. They absolutely stood up against the plans of that administration and made it possible for the rest of us to say, we're going to gather our arms around them and stand up for our federal sector sisters and brothers because if they can't do their jobs, we can't do ours either.
And when we made that very clear, when we called for a discussion in the labor movement for a general strike, and we made clear that flight attendants would not go to work. And every single person I talked to about this would ask me, where are the pilots? And I would say the pilots are with us, but talk to, talk to us as flight attendants, because if the pilots don't fly a plane, it doesn't take off, but if flight attendants don't staff it, it doesn't take off either. We have to redefine what labor is. That's what strike does too, is it challenges our assumptions about who has power. Women, immigrants, people of color. These are the people who have borne the brunt of coronavirus. These are the people who have done the jobs that make it possible for us to live. And these are the people who today have the power to change the course of labor and change the course of our history and change our world with healthcare for all, with green jobs and the ability to form your union without retaliation or interference from management. The PRO Act, we have clear demands for the right to secondary boycotts and no repla permanent replacement of strikers. These are demands for power that give every working person power, including those who are immigrant workers. So we're setting our demands. We're making very clear the urgency of this moment People are having to pee in bottles in the course of their jobs. We're defining for the rest of the world what this means and why it means something to them because we are coming out of a shared experience like no other before. We are ripe to organize in millions right now and over 85 million people want to have a union. We have to open our arms wide to every working person and lift up the work that every person does and understand very clearly where the power resides because back to the corporate elite, they have the control and they have the money, but they do not have the power. The power rests with us. That's what strike is about. That's the word that we have to share because people are looking for answers. They are sick and tired of working more than one job, of working overtime, of having their, the value of their work be defined by the boss and having to work harder to make more as opposed to make, making more for the value of the work that we give. And so this is a moment when mass strikes can take place again, when we move forward on voting rights, civil rights, human rights, the right to healthcare, the right to a green new world, <laughs> the right to live, without someone's knee in your neck. That's what this is about. That's what this moment is about. And that's what strike teaches us. And so when those flights stopped, those few flights in LaGuardia stopped because we had defined very clearly what working people were willing to do. I think what we really have to take in is that the corporate elite understood in that moment, if they let that go on for even another couple hours, workers would understand the full breadth of our power, of our ability to take control, of our ability to take over simply by putting our hands in our pockets. And they couldn't allow that to go on. So we have a job now and always to share the contents of strike, to share the living history of the people who really matter, the very interesting stories of those ordinary people going to work, making a living, 
and then finding their power like Jennifer Bates and her colleagues have found in the Amazon warehouse where whether that vote is for the union or not, they've started something that can't be stopped. There is majority support in that warehouse and there is majority support all over this country for unions because people have had enough. They've been squeezed far enough and they want to fight back. And we have the answers for them. So we're gonna talk about that a little bit more tonight about strike, about all the stories within it, but truly this is just about power and that power is owned only by working people. And that's why I'm so excited that Jeremy asked me to be a part of this 50th year anniversary, why I'm so excited to say the word strike. Let's say it again. Strike, 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 strike. Do not be afraid to say that word, own it, feel the power in that. Because working people have power. If we understand and if management understands that sometimes we have to beat it out of them. Sometimes they just have to remember the beating that they're going to take for them to deal fairly with working people. People talk about labor management relations and labor peace. And the one thing that we have to learn from our history in reading about strike is that the struggle is never over. If you are not exercising your muscles every day, you grow weak. If you are not understanding the struggle that it takes to keep working people in power, to help people understand their own power and stand up to the forces that would wish to exploit them and treat them as disposable, then we lose our ability to hold people accountable. When I told management at the beginning of coronavirus that they had to deal with us on our plans or else they were not going to get anything, they believed us <laughs> because we had shown them before. It is possible to have relationships with the corporate elite, but we have to understand that those relationships are built on the willingness to struggle, are built on the willingness to take up the fight, are built on the willingness to strike when necessary. And they have to understand that we'll do it. So we can never stop preparing for the strike. It is not a last resort. It is our power. It is our place. It is understanding the value of what we give to this economy, to our communities, to our democracy, and to the world. That's what strike is. And that's what we're gonna talk about tonight. And that's what we all have to say thank you so much to Jeremy Brecker for making it possible for us to have this discussion and know who we are truly as working people standing together. Thanks everybody. And one last time, we gotta always end it with, I've got your back. I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1968. That was the day 4,000 auto workers at Chrysler's Dodge Main Plant in Hamtrak, Michigan, walked out in a wildcat strike. They protested assembly line speed up, but also racist foremen and the firings of seven co-workers. The strike was significant for many reasons. It injected black power politics within the union movement. The CIO had made unprecedented gains in the 30s and 40s through interracial organizing and combating Jim Crow on the job. However, racial discrimination persisted in industries across America. The Wildcat shocked the UAW leadership, having prided itself in its early and central involvement in the civil rights movement. By 1968, many African Americans grew frustrated with the slow pace of reform and found the militancy of the black power movement attractive. According to historian Robert Weir, black auto worker activists considered many UAW officials paternalistic, condescending, and out of touch with the changing urban realities. Many of their white co-workers joined them on the picket lines. Black activists at Dodge, Maine condemned the UAW for failing to address the disproportionate racial discrimination they faced on the job. They demanded a separate contract that spoke to the needs of black workers and the right to bargain directly with the company. The Wildcat immediately grew into the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement and inspired similar groupings at other area auto plants. Those white workers who were initially sympathetic worried that Drum's demands would serve to weaken and ultimately split the union movement along racial lines. Drum would continue to demand for safer working conditions, shorter hours, and higher wages, an end to the Vietnam War, and more black union officials and supervisors. The movement was short-lived, however, but continues to be revered among Detroit activists today. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'd love to sing some happy song And turn my eyes and act like nothing's wrong But cause my country's going so astray I want to call a general strike today That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app, and we hope you do even better. If you like what you hear, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along to everybody you know. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. The April 6th Strike 50th Anniversary Symposium was presented by Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations, the Labor Education and Research Network, the Center for Innovation in Worker Organization, Labor Notes, and the Labor Network for Sustainability. We'll be featuring more excerpts from the symposium in future shows. Our music today included the Picket Line song by Evan Greer and General Strike by Mo Shinola. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Paza, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time. 
Yes, solidarity is here to stay. So folks, let's call it and we'll strike today.